When our kids were little, like most parents, we would take them in for a checkup at the doctor's office a couple of times a year. Now, the first thing you do when you get into the doctor's office is you what? You wait. Uh, it's not a hard question. You go into the waiting room and you wait. I mean, that's what it's called, and so that's what you do there. And then eventually they take you in. And the first thing they do is they measure your child. They check their height. They check their weight. And then they put those measurements on a chart so we can see how our child has grown and, and, and how they've matured over the years and, and since the last time they visited. It's a way to measure their maturity, to make sure everything is developing the way that it should. And if they're not growing, if they're not maturing, well, then you know that something is wrong. And in some ways, this is what 1 Corinthians does uh, for us as believers. Uh, Paul provides these, these marks of maturity. It allows us to gauge our growth as a believer. He planted this church three years earlier, and now he's challenging them to go on this journey to deep because they weren't growing as they should. Instead, he's received these reports of immorality and, and of division within the church. And, and so now he's writing and he's challenging them to grow in their walk with God. And so we're going on this journey uh, together as a church as well. And I would encourage you to, to bring your Bible each week to, uh, to, uh, to view these uh, messages. Uh, download the sermon notes that are available to you online so you can follow along because, uh, because we're going to go from chapter 5 through chapter 7 today. And there is a, is a lot of material there. In chapters 5 through 7, Paul talks to us about, about moving as believers uh, from compromise to commitment. And his primary focus is sexual immorality. There is this sexual immorality in the church that's compromised the church. It's compromised these believers. And they're looking more and more like the culture. And so Paul addresses that. Uh, in chapter 5, verse 1, here is what he says to the church. Uh, Paul says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that does not occur even among pagans. And then here's his example. A man has his father's wife. And so here's what happened. When Paul planted the church, he, he clearly established these are God's standards for your sex lives. This is what God wants from you in this area. But now these reports have come back uh, to him from, uh, from talking about where the people have compromised. And the word he uses for sexual immorality here is the Greek word porneia. It's where we get our word pornography from. It's kind of an umbrella word, and under that word falls any kind of sex that's not between a husband and a wife in a marriage covenant. Well, you say, uh, what about this area? Or what about this? Or what about this? Well, if it's not between a husband and a wife in a, in a, in a marriage covenant, then it falls under the umbrella of sexual immorality. And Paul says it's reported that that is taking place within the church. And so uh, Paul goes on and he gives the most extreme example of what's been reported to him. He says that a man has his father's wife. 
presumably his stepmother. And Paul says, how could this be? I mean, how did it come to this? And so how is it that compromise creeps into the life of a Christian? How is it that it comes into the church? How is it that we find ourselves doing things and acting in ways that we never meant to? Well, there are a few steps toward compromise. Uh, first, we become complacent. Uh, since Paul was there, to this point, things have slid. But you know what? It didn't all happen at once. It was just becoming complacent, one little step at a time. And you can hear the disbelief and the shock in Paul's voice when he says, it is actually reported. How did it come to this? Well, it's just complacency in the little things. Uh, Jim Collins, uh, the business author, wrote an article about business ethics in light of the bankruptcies of several uh, major uh, uh, um, American um, companies uh, in recent years. And he talked about how these business leaders went wrong. And I want to read to you just a section of that article's where, article where Jim Collins says, if you told them, he's talking about these business, business executives, if you told them 10 years ahead of time, hey, let's cook the books and all get rich, they would never go along with it. But that's rarely how most people get drawn into activities they later regret. When you're at step A, it feels inconceivable to jump all the way to step Z if step Z involves something that is a total breach of your values. But if you go from step A to step B, step B to step C, and step C to step D, then someday you wake up and discover you're at step Y, and the move to step Z comes about much easier. Well, that's what happens to us as Christians and within the church. We don't go from step A to step Z, but there are these compromises that take place. And one day you wake up and maybe you find yourself caught up in some pretty graphic images on the Internet. Or you wake up and you have to count in your head to remember how many people that you've been with. Or you wake up and you're lying in bed next to a person that you're not married to. Well, how did this happen? It's not what you were committed to. Uh, you were going to do things differently. And so how did it happen? Well, you go from step A to step B and step B to step C. And you think, well, you know, I can watch this movie and it's not really going to impact me. Or, hey, we can mess around on our date, but we're not going to cross any lines. Or I can flirt with her in the office, but I'll keep it innocent. And these little steps of complacently, uh, complacency eventually lead to compromise. And, and that's what Paul says in the next chapter. Uh, verse 18 of chapter 6, Paul says, flee. Flee from sexual immorality. And the word he uses here for flee is a very strong word. It says, run, run, and keep on running. And he doesn't say flirt with sexual immorality, which is what a lot of us tend to do. You know, we get as close as we can to the line without actually stepping over it. No, he says, no, don't get as close as you can. Run away as fast as you can. 
A second reason why we compromise, uh, or, or why compromise comes into the church, is that we confuse love with approval. We confuse love with approval. You know, we think that if we really love someone, well, that means that we're going to approve of their decisions and their behavior, uh, no matter what it is. Uh, so Paul says in, in verse 2, talking about this man in the church, Paul says, and you are proud. I mean, you're actually proud that he's a part of your church fellowship. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief? Uh, shouldn't this have broken your heart, Paul is saying? And shouldn't you have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? And so the church is proud. They're saying, hey, look, we're an open church. We're an accepting church. We allow all kinds of people to be a part of our family. And Paul says, what are you talking about? That's not at all the loving thing to do. When a Christian is caught up in sin and they won't repent, uh, they won't recognize that it's wrong, the most loving thing that you can do isn't just to accept them and approve of them, but is to actually say something, uh, to actually do something. Uh, you know, if you and I are traveling down the road together and you know exactly how to get where we're going, and, and I miss my turn, and you don't say anything because you want to be loving, well, that's not loving. The most loving thing you can do is to say, hey, David, you need to turn around and go back here. And Paul says, that's what you need to do with this guy. Uh, look at verse 5. Paul gives them these instructions. He says, hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. And so Paul says, you need to show this guy some tough love. Uh, if he experiences some of the consequences of, it, of his decision, then maybe he will, he will change. And, and that's exactly uh, what happens uh, in uh, the next book, uh, the next letter uh, that he writes to this church, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 2. We discover that this same man has repented. He's sorry for what he's done. And Paul writes to the church and he says, okay, now you forgive him and you reaffirm your love for him. You see, when a church starts confusing love with approval, compromise comes in. Last week, Paul talked to us about the importance of unity in the body of Christ. But unity never comes at the cost of compromising God's standards. When we do that, it's not unity, it's heresy. And then the third thing that leads to compromise with Christians and, and in the church is that we compare ourselves to other people. We compare ourselves to other people. You know, it would have been easy for this church in Corinth uh, to, to kind of look down the road because there was, a, there was a temple down the road called the Temple of Aphrodite where pagan worshipers would engage in, in communal sex and orgies as an act of worship. And so it would have been easy for the church in Corinth to say, well, at least we're not doing those things. I mean, at least we're not doing that. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, it's not wise for you to compare yourselves with yourselves. Instead, we compare ourselves only to God's standards. 
former police chief of Los Angeles, uh, Bob Vernon, uh, talks about what he calls the parallel lines theory. And that theory goes kind of like this. Imagine that there are two parallel lines running. The lower line represents the world, the culture, and then the top line represents the church. Well, according to this theory, or his theory, whenever the culture takes a dip morally, so does the church. Now, the church is always just above the culture statistically when it comes to things like sex and morals. But whenever the culture dives, so does the church too often. And so it's this parallel lines theory. But here's the way that it should be. As the culture takes a nosedive in its values, the church maintains its standard of holiness based upon what God's Word teaches. And so we get into trouble when we start comparing ourselves to the culture. And so in chapter 5, Paul identifies this crisis of compromise within the church. And then we move to chapter 6. And Paul is going to call these believers to a higher level of commitment. In verses 9 through 11, uh, he reminds them how they used to be like the world in their sexual thinking and in their sexual behavior. But in verse 11, he says, no longer. He says, you've been washed, you've been justified, uh, you've been sanctified through Jesus Christ. This is who you are now. And in chapter 6, he goes on to compare the way the world thinks about sex, uh, the cultural reasons for sex, and he compares that to the spiritual reality of our sexuality. And so in verse 12, he gives the first way the world thinks about sex. And he quotes the Corinthians themselves. This was a popular Corinthian saying in verse 12, where they said, everything is permissible for me. Everything is permissible for me. Uh, for the people living in Corinth, uh, how they determined uh, right and wrong, what was moral and what was immoral, was based on what was legal or illegal. Um, what was immoral and what was moral. It was based upon being legal or illegal. And as long as it was legal, as long as it was you know, culturally uh, acceptable, um, uh, then it was permissible, at least the way they thought. And Paul writes to tell the church, this, this isn't the way uh, that, that it should be. Now, for us, we say similar things. You know, we say, well, as long as, between, as long as it's between two consenting adults, as long as they're consenting adults, nobody gets hurt. Or we say, you know what, if it feels good, then it must be fine to do. And Paul says, no. And here's the spiritual reality. Everything is permissible for me, but the spiritual reality is, yeah, but not everything is beneficial. And so even though it may be legal, even though it may be accepted by society, if you're violating God's standards, it is not beneficial. There are still consequences that have to be paid. And some of you, uh, some of you understand that. And then he also says, everything is permissible, but secondly, I will not be mastered by anything. 
You know, the most enslaved people that I know are those who are not resisting their sexual desires, but just giving in to them. Those people are not sexually free. They are sexually enslaved. In verse 13, uh, Paul quotes another saying popular among the Corinthians. He says, food for the stomach and the stomach for food. In other words, sex is just a natural biological function, and it reduces our sexuality down to that of an animal. I mean, this is just the way my body works, you know. Uh, just as my stomach needs food to eat, sometimes my body needs a sexual release, and it reduces sex down to just a pure biological function. But Paul says, here is the spiritual reality. Uh, verse 13, he says, The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Uh, the spiritual reality is the purpose of my body is to glorify God. To glorify uh, God. In Corinth, there was a group of false teachers called uh, the, the Gnostics who taught that there was this separation between your body and uh, your soul. And uh, in other words, you could do whatever you wanted to sexually and it wouldn't impact who you were spiritually because, hey, this is just your body. It's just biology. And your soul and your body, those two things are separate, they taught. But some of you know firsthand that that's, that's just not true. When you are violating God's standards sexually, there is something that comes between you and Him. And it becomes hard to pray. Uh, you come to church to worship, but your heart is not really into it. You're just kind of going through the motions. Well, that's because who you are sexually and who you are spiritually, uh, those things cannot be separated. And then there's, a, there's another cultural reasoning, a third one that could basically be summed up like this. It's my body. I can do with it whatever I want. Hey, it's my body. Don't tell me what I can do with my body. And Paul addresses that in verse 19. Uh, Paul says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? And then here's the spiritual reality right here. You are not your own. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. And so Paul says, your body, uh, your body is a temple. It is a holy dwelling. Uh, a while back, I was in the church foyer, and I was talking to a man who was a fairly new Christian, new to church. And, and in this conversation uh, with me that day, he accidentally took the Lord's name in vain. And as soon as he said it, uh, you know, he, he, you could just tell he wanted to get that back, but he couldn't. And so he apologized for it. He said, oh, I'm so, so sorry. I forgot I was in church. And I encouraged him. I tried to help him along with his path. But I wanted to say, hey, you know, this, this church is not where God lives. You know that, right? Uh, this, uh, you know, when we're talking about this as being God's house, this is just a building. This, this is God's house. 
Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. This is where God lives. And it's not just what happens within these doors in this building. It's what happens out there. He is with you. He is with you when you stream the movie. And he is with you at your girlfriend's house when her parents aren't home. Uh, you know, they may not be home, but Jesus is home. He's with you. And so you're not your own. You have been bought with the price. And so he says, therefore, honor God with your body. Now, in, in chapter 7, uh, Paul is going to speak to us about sex, specifically in the context of marriage. Because what often keeps us from being committed to God in this area of our lives is that we underestimate the importance of the sexual relationship in marriage. And so he speaks very directly on some issues. Now, I know that for some of you, uh, some of this can be a little bit uncomfortable. And yet, you know, as I said last week, where the Bible speaks, we have to speak. And, and, and that's what we're committed to doing. And we hear so much of this from our culture and from our world. We're bombarded by it, that we need to speak directly to it, uh, directly about it uh, in the church. A few years ago, I preached another sermon about this topic, and I had a single guy come up to me after church was over, and he said to me, you know what, we talk a lot about having sex, about not having sex in church, but it was really helpful to me to be able to look forward to what God really has in mind. And so Paul talks to us very plainly, very directly about this, because this directly affects our commitment to God. In chapter 7, verse 1, Paul says, Now for the matters you wrote about. And so apparently the church in Corinth had sent a Paul a letter asking him some pretty specific questions about this area, about sex and marriage. And so Paul is going to address those questions. And here's the challenge for us. We don't have the questions. We only have the answers. And so it's kind of like the game show Jeopardy. We have to come up with what the questions were. And the first question uh, that Paul seems to address is this. Is it better to just have nothing to do with sex? In chapter 7, verse 1, Paul says, Now for the matters you wrote about. Now I want you to notice something here. Do you see the punctuation there? If you look there, there is a colon. Hang on to that for a minute. Now, for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to marry. Literally, in the Greek, that reads, it is good for a man not to have sexual contact with a woman. Now, we could probably just stop right there and find out what happens to church attendance next week. I think we would look a lot like a Beth Moore conference. There wouldn't be a, a lot of men in the church if that's where we stopped. But what is Paul talking about? I mean, what is Paul saying here? It's good for a man not to have sexual contact with a woman? Really? Is that what, what Paul really means here? Well, you've got to go back to that colon that I referenced. You see, Paul was simply restating the conclusion that many of the people of the church in that day had reached. Hey, the best thing for us to do is just swear off sex altogether. But that's not what Paul is saying. 
It's what the people have said, and Paul is just restating it. Their intentions were probably good. You see, those people in the church grew up in a very pagan culture where sex was just very closely associated with false gods and with all kinds of idolatry. And so for them, this was the challenge. They could not associate sex with things that were good and godly. They couldn't associate sex with something good and godly. But Paul says in verse 7, uh, Paul describes it as a gift. It's a gift from God, but they just couldn't think of it that way. And I think that's a challenge. I think that's a challenge for many people today. Many of you maybe grew up in a home where your parents never talked to you about sex. And even now it feels very uncomfortable and, and, and somehow inappropriate because sex uh, doesn't seem like something that's good or godly. And so you grew up with this idea. You got married, and, it, and it's something that you endure, but it's not something that you embrace as a gift. It's not something that you celebrate as a gift. And then the second question that Paul seems to address in chapter 7 is this. Is it really my job to sexually satisfy my partner? Now, even the nature uh, or the way that that question is worded reveals the primary problem, right? What's the word that's used there? Job. Is it really my chore? Wash the dishes? Check. Fold the laundry? Check. Slept with my husband this week? Check. <laughs> That's the problem, that instead of a gift, we see it as a job. And so Paul speaks very directly in verses 3 and 4, but he doesn't speak about sexual technique. He speaks about attitude. He speaks about the way that you think, because this is what really makes the difference. Look at verses 3 and 4 there that say, The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her, but also to her husband. In the same way, and this would have been a revolutionary idea in that day, in the same way the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Uh, the message paraphrase puts it this way, the marriage bed must be a place of mutuality. The husband seeking to satisfy his wife, the wife seeking to satisfy her husband. But this is the opposite of how so many have been indoctrinated to think about sex. And we've got to recognize this. We have been taught that sex is very selfish. That the purpose of sex is for me to feel good. It's for my desires to be satisfied, for my needs to be met. And Paul says no. That's exactly the opposite. It's an opportunity for you to express love. It's an opportunity for you to express affection. Uh, it's an opportunity for you to seek to satisfy your spouse. And there is a problem in your marriage if you, if you don't receive joy from seeing your spouse receive pleasure. You know, when I marry couples, I'll say to them somewhere along the line in the counseling, may your greatest moments of happiness come from seeing each other's needs be met. 
And if you don't receive joy, if you don't receive happiness from meeting the needs of your spouse, then I think it's likely because somewhere along the line, your understanding of sex was poisoned. Uh, maybe because there was abuse. Uh, maybe it was a past sexual relationship where it was all about duty and it was all about guilt. Maybe it's because of pornography. Maybe you watched one too many episodes of Desperate Housewives and, and you just kind of bought into this idea that it's all about me and getting my needs met. And Paul says, no, it's exactly the opposite. It's about a husband seeking to satisfy his wife and a wife seeking to satisfy her husband. Husbands, notice the order of that. First, the instruction is to you. First, you seek to satisfy your wife. And so why don't husbands and wives do this? Well, one we, we saw is selfishness. Another is that it's just not taken seriously. Husbands and wives just underestimate the importance of sexual intimacy in their marriage. And then in verse 4 of chapter 7, Paul addresses another reason, and that is the selfish way that we see our bodies. Paul says there, the wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. And when we hear this language in our culture, we become very defensive. Uh, we say, now time out here. No, this is my body. This is my body. But that's not the way God designed it. And when you entered into a marriage covenant, you said, this is no longer, this no longer just belongs to me, but this belongs to you as well. But lastly, the question that, uh, that he, he addresses here um, in verse 5 is this. This is the question, how often should a Christian couple uh, make love? And I hate to do this, but we're out of time. <laughs> Uh, and we always sit on time, you know. No, I'm kidding. Uh, this is actually, actually I did a little research and I found out that, uh, that on most marriage websites, this is the most commonly asked question by married couples. What's the normal? What's the right amount of frequency? And so Paul, uh, he goes on and he, he addresses that. Uh, look at verse 5 together there. Uh, Paul says, Do not deprive each other except by, and this is an important phrase here, except by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. And then Paul writes, Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And so he says, there, there needs to be uh, some mutual consent and only for a short time so that Satan won't tempt you. And again, he's coming back to the fact that this has to, a, a lot to do with your communication uh, and your commitment uh, to God. Now, because this is an issue, but not always, certainly not always, but frequency is usually more something that a man is concerned about. Instead of me teaching this section, I want to read to you the words of an author and teacher by the name of Sarah Emerson, who wrote the book Love and Respect along with her husband. And, and here's what she writes about this. Uh, Sarah uh, says this, 
She says, Paul says, each is to fulfill their duty to their husband. Husbands particularly can come under satanic attack when deprived of sexual release. And she goes on and writes, wives might be able to do better to understand this if they think about how they would feel if their husbands only wanted to talk or listen to them once a week or a couple of times a month. Being deprived of emotional release would make most women miserable, she writes. And then Sarah goes on and, and she tells about a time that she was teaching through this material at, at a conference. And a young woman came up to her after the conference is over and she was married with children. And she said to Sarah, she said, I've got to tell you what happened just last Sunday. I called my mom on Sunday afternoon and I told her, hey, mom, this Sunday our family's not going to be able to come over. They, they usually would go over to her parents' house on Sunday afternoons and, and her mom, uh, who is in her late 60s, says this to her daughter. She says, well, why can't you come over? What's going on? And her daughter says back to her, well, if you really want to know, my husband is walking around feeling all sorry for himself because we haven't been intimate for more than a week. And her mom said, again, she's in her late 60s here, her mom said, Honey, you should be ashamed of yourself. Why would you deprive him of something that makes him so happy and takes such a short amount of time? And her daughter said, Mom, I can't believe that you just said that. And then she thought to herself, You know what? My mom has been married for almost 50 years, and I don't know anyone who has a happier marriage. You see, the, 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 the issue of frequency can cause a lot of conflict in marriage. So Paul addresses it. In some ways, the previous question speaks to this one. When you have a husband and a wife who are both completely committed to selflessly loving and seeing each other's satisfaction, this question naturally gets answered. But more often than not, the question goes something like this. How many times? How many times a week? What's normal? And, and Paul doesn't give a number because it's different. Different seasons of life, different scenarios. But instead, he gives some really important principles that help each couple answer this question. And the first principle that he gives is the principle of mutuality. The principle of mutuality. Paul says, don't deprive one another. And in your relationship, you never have the right to demand sex, and you never have the right to withhold sex. Instead, you decide together. Uh, when my wife and I go out on a date, you know, sometimes she wants to go eat at one restaurant and, and, and I want to go eat at another restaurant. And if she says, you know what, uh, it, would really, it would really mean a lot to me. It would really mean a lot uh, to me. It just sounds really good if, if tonight we went out for Italian. Well, I'd be like, okay, well, let's go out for Italian. It's a spirit of mutual consent. It's just, you know, sometimes one wants it this way and sometimes one doesn't. But we agree together. No one has the right to demand it and no one has the right to withhold it. Again, it just goes back to this idea of selfless love. The second principle here is the principle of need. Uh, he warns that you should not stay apart for long so that Satan will not tempt you uh, because of your lack of self-control. 
Pastor Bob Russell put it this way. He said, if you're not sharing love in your marriage, you are sending a starving person out into the world, which is just a food court with luscious aromas beckoning and many shops offering free samples. The temptation level goes up and the commitment level in the marriage goes down. And as a result, the commitment level to Christ is compromised. If you are regularly just kind of, you know, if you, if you reject or you deny this teaching, you are rejecting and denying the teaching of Scripture. And so Paul speaks very clearly on these issues. Now, as you read through this section, it really comes down to selfless sacrifice, to loving your spouse the way that Christ loves us. God calls us not just to love one another that way, but to love Him that way too, with a full commitment. The church is described in Scripture as the bride of Christ, where we give our love fully to God as He has shown His love to us through the sacrifice of His Son, Jesus Christ. You know, if you are compromising in some area of your life, maybe this is a great weekend for you to say, God, I want to commit myself fully to you. The Bible says in verse 11 of chapter 6 that the church in Corinth, that the people in the church were washed. They were justified. They were sanctified. And that offer still stands.